Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Right Take, episode number 44. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. I was not expecting this. I was not at all prepared for this episode to have to become what it is right now. But because, of course, I hinted at the end of the last episode that we would be doing for this episode a look back on the one-year anniversary of the 2020 election, and we do a deep dive on the voter fraud that took place that year and analyze it and see what happened and what went wrong, and that we would probably start off recapping the results of the elections we had just this last week on Tuesday in the year 2021. We assumed, of course, that the elections would not be worth talking about, and I am glad to be proven wrong. There are many reasons I think we both can say we are glad to have been proven wrong about what happened on Tuesday. I'm going to issue a mea culpa right now. I was wrong on several fronts. First off, I was wrong. I was incorrect in my prediction about the Virginia governor's race. I predicted that McAuliffe would win, that Democrat Terry McAuliffe would ultimately win, because I thought, if anything, we'd see a repeat of 2020, that Glenn Youngkin would be in the lead on election night, and then a few days later, mysterious ballots come out of nowhere, and McAuliffe takes the lead, and he'd win by a couple percentage points. That's not what happened. Apparently, if there was any voter fraud shenanigans going on, which there may have been in Fairfax County, if uh, we'll talk about that later, uh, if there was, the support for Youngkin was just too high, and they couldn't even overcome that. We saw not just a victory for Glenn Youngkin in the governor's race. We saw a complete red wave in the Commonwealth of Virginia. They took all three statewide offices, governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and right now they have already flipped the House of Delegates, which was previously a 55-45 Dem majority for what is now currently a 52-48 Republican majority. All three candidates for statewide office scored around 51% of the vote, which compared to Joe Biden allegedly winning the state by 10 points with 55% last year in the presidential race is a roughly 15 point swing that is nothing short of absolutely historic and monumental the mainstream media and democrats but i repeat myself have been melting down over the last few days over this republicans are right to celebrate but maybe with a bit of caution going forward and we are going to analyze all of it right now how this happened why it happened who we have to thank which voters we have to thank which issues were at the front and center that ultimately allowed this victory to happen Oh man, this really was a great a great day. Tuesday Tuesday night, I was actually at a watch party with the Arlington County Republican Party in the courthouse neighborhood, and oh man, the energy in that room. By the time I got there, like it's it was kind of obvious he was winning. It hadn't been officially called yet. I don't think. I think the earliest calls that I saw following on Twitter was Decision Desk HQ and Dave Wasserman of Cook Political Report. You know, he's the guy who, of all among all the chief, you know, election number cruncher analyst nerds types, he was the one who popularized the phrase, I've seen enough, which is usually what he says when he's like, okay, from the data I've seen, uh, that's it, I don't need to say anymore. And I saw him tweet, I've seen enough, Glenn Young will be the next governor of Virginia. So by the time I got there, there were lots of let's go, Brandon Chance, everybody was having a drink, I was there with some friends, it was a... Uh, it was a good time. So, uh, Jacob, what do you have to say about what happened in Virginia on Tuesday night? What a bunch of absolute nerds. <laughs> Y'all were watching the election results while the final game of the World Series was on? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, clearly. That's, I, just, that's just sad. That's really, really sad. No, I was watching the World Series. I was actually really happy the Atlanta Braves won, and I was periodically checking the election results. I wasn't necessarily anti-Astros. I was mainly – I wanted the Braves to win just because they're in the same division. They're closer where I grew up. And so we head over there, and of course you got the political junkies sitting over in the corner at a table. Um, they were watching the political results, and most everybody else was uh, was just pumped about Atlanta beating the beating the cheating Astros. 
And so uh, we're so we're over there, and I just glanced. the The girl at the bar got really, really angry that people were talking about politics, just because she was she was going off about how everybody only thinks their opinion is the only one that matters. So I just glance over at the at CNN, and it's showing the New Jersey race, and the the cryon they've got on CNN is Republicans lead in both Virginia and New Jersey, and I was like, what? Like New Jersey, because I knew Virginia at this point, Youngkin pretty much had it wrapped up. But I mm-hmm. figured in New Jersey it was going to be a blowout. It was going to be everybody thought it would like be a, a fifteen point, ten to fifteen point Murphy win, a very easy win. And at this point, Ciattarelli that was lead. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he was Ciattarelli, but yeah, um, he was he was leading in the in the race at this point. It looked like he might even pull out the the victory. Mm-hmm. So that was that was shocking. And this was uh, you know it was definitely a red wave when New Jersey, which is one of the most unwinnable states in the country for Republicans, just demographic wise, as we're going to get into, oh, and that yeah. is at risk of, uh, of turning red. And it wasn't just the the governor's race. They the state senate uh, president he ended up uh, losing his seat to an unknown truck driver. A truck driver who spent one hundred and fifty three. And I think half of it was spent at Dunkin', Dunkin Donuts. Donuts, and the rest yes. was spent on paper flyers. He didn't and have a website. He had a Facebook page. An absolute legend. But yeah, he uh, knocked off the state Senate president, and they're going to lose, uh, I think it's like eight. So, so they're still counting votes, but it's mm-hmm. like eight seats in the New Jersey House. Flipped Republican, and um, of course the state Senate seat. There may be a couple of other state Senate seats that go red as well. But this is going to this is going to force Democrats in New Jersey to have to negotiate a lot more than they did beforehand. Oh yeah, and not just New Jersey and Virginia, but all across the country. We saw, uh, of course, New York had their elections as well. And surprise, surprise, Eric Adams won the mayor race. You know, we knew Curtis Sliwa wasn't going to win, but I guess Republicans did really well in Long Island. They swept a whole bunch of offices in Long Island, and then all the way in Seattle. A Republican won the election for city attorney in Seattle, Washington against the Democrat. And all across the board, that was the one like Democrat versus Republican race. The rest were all Democrats against Democrats. And by and large, we saw uh, they were races between moderate Dems who were like, hey, maybe let's not defund the police versus the all out progressive abolish all the police, shut down all prisons right now. And all the pro police Democrats won. You know, uh, Jacob Frey over in Minneapolis was reelected in Minneapolis in Minnesota, as a fact, a matter of fact, uh, Ballot measure two, a measure to def- to completely abolish the police and replace it with a public safety administration, was defeated by like I think a 15 point margin. So it was a crushing night for Democrats in general, but especially for the far left, for the defeat the defund the police, the Black Lives Matter candidates, all that stuff. So it was really a truly the best of the best kind of election we could have possibly had. But of course, we're primarily going to focus on Virginia because that is the race, the governor's race specifically. That's the one with all the patterns the numbers, the exit polls, the demographics, the issues that matter the most going forward and lay out a perfect blueprint for Republicans, real Republicans, America first MAGA candidates who can hope to win in 2022 and 2024 and beyond. So the thing to remember too is that Yunkin, this is widely considered an upset. Yunkin, he's being compared to Trump for this, wealthy businessman who had never run for office before, this was his first time ever running for anything, was up against an ultimate establishment politician, especially in the state of Virginia. He was up against Terry McAuliffe. He's one of Bill Clinton's right-hand men. He's a top fundraiser in the Clinton machine in the Democratic Party in general. He was chair of the Democratic National Committee. And of course, he was governor of Virginia once before. In He was elected in 2013, an election that uh, it's worth pointing out. That was like the first time Virginia broke its streak of, okay, whichever president is in the White House, a candidate of the opposite party wins the governor's race in Virginia. That always usually happens. But in 2013, with Obama in office in his second term, McAuliffe broke that trend. Though it's worth pointing out that in that election, McAuliffe won primarily because the 
third, the libertarian candidate, this guy named Robert Sarvis, got like 6.5% of the vote, whereas the margin of victory Terry McAuliffe had over the Republican Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli was 2%, 2.5%. So if it weren't for that libertarian, you better believe that Cuccinelli would have won that election. He would, We've had a Republican governor of Virginia back then. But McAuliffe was governor once before, and he tried to do it again because, of course, Virginia is the only state in the country where governors can't serve consecutive terms. So all the odds were stacked against him. All the polls overwhelmingly showed McAuliffe in the lead. And we all thought that was going to be it. Yeah, McAuliffe's going to come back. Youngkin may put up a good fight, but it's ultimately going to be a Democrat victory. And probably all across the board as well for the other statewide offices. You know, the Attorney General, Mark Herring, was running for his third term. So he's a firmly entrenched incumbent. And we did an episode, of course, on this. Episode 39 against Youngkin. While we basically said, yeah, Youngkin is not great on social issues. You know, he, he panders to Black Lives Matter. He's, you know, he's just not that great. He's not, he's not a good candidate. But this is the other part where you got to say we were wrong on Youngkin because in the last few weeks, these last three weeks of the campaign is where it really heightened up, is where it got the stakes got higher than ever before, and the campaigning on both sides really ramped up. So McAuliffe went all in. He brought in the big guns. He brought in Biden, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden. He brought in Obama. He brought in Kamala Harris. He brought in Stacey Abrams, the governor of Georgia. He brought in all the Democrat bigwigs, the biggest names, to campaign for him. And Youngkin, conversely, he responded not by bringing in any big guns. He still campaigned all by himself. He focused on the issues that mattered. He kind of, uh, almost like he might have listened to our episode, he focused on the cultural issues. He focused on the culture war, on the social issues that matter the most. And at the forefront of all this, and I wrote an article for this at American Greatness, my first commentary piece in a long time, I've been out of the game for a while, was education. And specifically, the stuff we have talked about many times on this podcast. The critical race theory in schools, school board members using the police as their personal bodyguards to arrest parents, Merrick Garland declaring parents to be domestic terrorists, and of course, the trans bathrooms allowing, you know, rapists to go in and, and rape girls in girls' bathrooms because the dude is wearing a skirt, so he calls himself transgender. Youngkin campaigned hard on these issues. He said, I am going to ban CRT. He also campaigned against uh, mask mandates and vaccine mandates. He went all out, and even just his campaigning style got really energetic and fiery and these really loud, rambunctious, crowded rallies. It was very, very Trumpian. And that, I think more than anything else, ginned up the Trump base and really got the Trump base, those rural voters, you know, and basically everywhere else in the state that's not the Northeast, to turn out and vote for him as well. And, of course, combined with Trump endorsing him, Trump, you know, unapologetically endorsed him, and Youngkin accepted that endorsement. To his credit, he did not disavow the former president. He didn't, you know, cave to the media and say, oh, I'm not like him. I'm, I'm not like Trump. He accepted his endorsement and moved on from there. He didn't bash Trump. He didn't waste any time of that because he knew that would not help him. Yeah, I was listening to some of the rally that Obama did for uh, McAuliffe, and he was, of course, sort of talking hitting on the critical race theory, arguing that, you know, there's critical race theory isn't taught in schools. And it's funny, every, all the major media outlets, they repeat this, you know, once every, every time that Youngkin came up, they kept repeating, critical race theory isn't even taught in Virginia schools. Oh, critical yeah. race theory isn't even taught in Virginia. They just repeat it over and it's over and over. In all the articles, everything, that's, that's the new line of attack because uh, they benefit from the fact that critical race theory is still kind of ambiguous, that it's not officially defined supposedly so well just because there isn't a critical race theory 101 taught in high school and right. you know as an ap course or whatever but it's as if these parents that are reading these textbooks that are listening to these online they had to listen to all this stuff online whenever everything went remote mm -hmm. as if they're going to convince these parents who have seen it with their own eyes and heard it with their own ears that it doesn't exist and it's not just critical race theory that was just part of it it was also all of the sexual education that they're forcing yep. on these kids but not only that they're intentionally trying to undermine the parental child relationship. 
They're trying to bring the teacher in between the parent and the child and undermine the family. And this is very obvious during the Black Lives Matter movement because they were trying to get parents and uh, trying to uh, break parents and kids relationships over race, trying to convince kids that their parents were racist. And, yep. then, and when it came to the January 6th stuff, they were trying to get kids to rat out their parents. And you actually had that. Some kids were turning their parents <clears throat> over to authorities and then collecting money online from people online. And this is this was effective because you had kids that were raking in tens of thousands of dollars online. So it's kind of like, well, would I rather be a hero to the left and collect tens of thousands of dollars and break off my relationship with my mom and dad? Or would I rather keep that relationship and not collect tens of thousands of dollars? And for many kids, the money was a greater incentive. And this is kind of what their goal is, to create a wedge between kids and parents, to make it advantageous uh, both career-wise and socially among their peers for kids to be anti-racist and therefore anti-parental authority and against their parents. And on the sexual issues, here's just an example of some of the things that parents are revolting against in Fairfax County. Fairfax, the school board and the board of supervisors in Fairfax County, Virginia, has issued a survey for students as young as 12 this month, even despite the election, despite the election results. They've issued this survey for kids as young as 12 that will uh, that will survey them on their sexual activity, their transgender identity, and whether their parents bully them. So some of the questions in the survey that they're asked is, how old were you when you had sexual intercourse for the first time? During your life, with how many people have you had sexual intercourse? During the past three months, how with how many people have you had sexual intercourse? Did you drink alcohol or use drugs before you had sexual intercourse the last time? The last time you had sexual intercourse, did you or your partner use a condom? Or have you ever had oral sex? And then it goes on and on. This is just These are just some of the questions. But what's even more insidious is the question about parental authority. The survey also asked them, how many times in the past year has a parent or adult in your household bullied, taunted, ridiculed, or teased you? So now teasing, if a parent teases their kid, playfully teases them now, they want them to report that to the school. To their teachers, so what? So they can get the police involved. So they can get the parents can get a knock services. on the, yeah. yeah. So the parents can get a knock on the door. Hey, we heard that you made fun of your child's sexual orientation. You you realize that that could be a hate crime. You know, you're you're making fun of your kid's sexual orientation. You're trying to convince them that they're not actually gay. Uh, you know, we probably need to take your kid away from them and give them to a a more gender affirming foster parent. Or it could be something as simple as, you know, they they put on a, a funny hat or whatever the kid te they kid tease their kid. And this is kind of the direction that they want to go. This is where the progressive movement wants to go to where it, we're all stakeholders in society. You don't have parents who rule over their kids. You know, you don't have fathers who are the head of the household. You don't have the head of anything. Basically, the state that is governed by stakeholders governs everything. And this is what this is part of what drove the turnout for Yunkin. Yeah, the, above all else, parents did really – this really was, I think, in a lot of ways, revenge of the parents that they came out and voted for Yunkin. And again, as, as often been said, oh, it's all about the suburban voters, the suburban white voters, the suburban white women, and you got to pander to them. You got to be moderate. You got to say you're for abortion. No, no, no. All you need to do is say, hey, they're trying to take your kids away. How do you feel about that? And they will ultimately come out and vote for a Republican. So one issue, for example, of uh, the issue of education. So famously, infamously now, Terry McAuliffe in one of the debates was asked about education. And we talked about this. And he said, oh, I don't think the parents should have any say in what schools teach their children. 
And of course, Jacob, you you agreed with that assessment because you said you simply point out what if the roles were reversed right now and parents were mobbing school board meetings demanding that critical race theory and transgenderism be taught. We wouldn't want to cave to that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, Youngkin within like 24 hours made a campaign out out of that, and that is widely being cited as almost like his basket of deplorables moment. That's you know that's the moment that probably did sink his campaign. Certainly with those suburban parents. The question was asked. This is from Axios and NBC exit poll. This is from an NBC exit poll. When voters for both candidates were asked, how much say should parents have in curriculum? 74% of McAuliffe voters said a lot or some, and 23% said not much or not at all. Among Youngkin voters, 94% said a lot, while just 3% said not much or not at all. So education, and again, the culture was, this wasn't education in the traditional sense of how much uh, public, should the budget for public education be? You know, what sh should bargaining rights be with the teachers unions? No, no, no. It wasn't policy want garbage like that. It was emotional, social issues that tug at the heartstrings. These parents did not vote. With, they voted with their hearts. And that has for the longest time been a tactic that works for the left. You scream about racism, you cry about you know, sexism, whatever, and they get their voters to come out and vote with their hearts instead of their brains. And Republicans usually say, oh, just vote with your brains instead of your hearts. No, no, no. We can use that strategy to our advantage as well. And we just did that. In this was not a kitchen table issue. Definitely not. Not at all. Not at all. So again, across all three offices, this is especially important with regards to the state attorney general race. Again, uh, state delegate Jason Miaras, who is the son of Cuban immigrants, ran against incumbent Democrat Mark Herring, who has already served two terms before. There are no uh, term limits, I guess, on attorney general, just on governor. And he was seeking a third term. He was initially running for governor. Then he dropped out when McAuliffe uh, announced his run. So he went back to just running for reelection to see his attorney general. So Miaras winning this election was especially important because uh, but here's why here's why this election was actually far more important than the governor's race. And of course, I did not vote for Yunkin. And, and whenever we talked about this in the last episode, we talked about the Virginia race. I, I said, obviously, everybody needs to vote for their House of Delegates candidate. And they also need to vote for Jason Meares. They need to vote for the uh, lieutenant governor. And the, the reason why Meares is so important is because Soros' strategy over the past four years has been to infuse hundreds of millions of dollars into attorney's races. So he's been trying to load up all the benches with judges who are for police reform and against America who believe that America is racist. He wants to try to influence prosecutors and you know uh, attorneys racist to make sure that all your local prosecutors agree with BLM, agree with the, the premise that America's system is racist. Basically, critical legal theory, yep. uh, which was the precursor to critical race theory. That's how you get these prosecutors who went after Mark and Patricia McCloskey in Missouri for the gun-toting incident. That's how you get the prosecutors going after Kyle Rittenhouse, mm -hmm. because any sensible American you know, attorney who actually supports the Constitution would look at these clear-cut cases and say, oh, yeah, this is self-defense. We're not going to prosecute this. But what we've seen with these prosecutors is they run on an agenda, a progressive agenda, so-called progressive agenda that is against putting criminals in jail, arguing that we need to have more social programs, that we need more social workers to deal with crime rather than putting these troubled black youths in jail. And this is this is their platform. But what happens is whenever it's – and whenever there you have a, a situation – where a criminal who happens to be black ends up committing a crime, they get a little slap on the wrist or they don't get prosecuted at all. And many times the victims of crime themselves are prosecuted if they try to defend themselves. And a very prominent case, just as the coronavirus has taken off last year, was in Arlington. There was a recently elected George Soros-funded prosecutor who 
ended up charging a guy who fired in self-defense because he was uh, staying overnight at a store that he worked at, trying to defend a store. It was broken into by a couple of black youths. He fired in self-defense, and he was prosecuted for it. And so, and then the guy, not only was he prosecuted, but he was denied bail. And uh, it was, the guy was an immigrant. Like he wasn't, it's not like he was a white guy. He was an immigrant, but it became very obvious that the purpose of these prosecutors was to provide a second, a double standard for black Americans against everybody else. And this would create a racial divide. It would solidify black support for the progressive agenda because this was one of the soft spots. George Soros is a progressive, obviously, and black Americans traditionally have just been party line people. They vote like they voted for Hillary Clinton. They didn't vote for Bernie Sanders. They voted for Joe Biden. They didn't vote for Bernie Sanders. By giving them special status, by you know, by allowing these prosecutors and judges to give them a special status, this would supposedly allow them to support more progressive politicians rather than continue to support the party line. Well, in another case in uh, Loudoun County, we talked about the rape case. Remember, mm -hmm. the dad was arrested and prosecuted for having simply stood up for you know stood up for his daughter stood up and he was attacked by the police he was, he was beaten, assaulted by the police bloodied and arrested and then he was sentenced to time served and then a year of probation because he simply was uh, unruly at a school board meeting that was his that was his charge he was, that was being his unruly crime. at a school board meeting well that prosecutor who prosecuted that case she had been purposely lenient on crime, and that was her platform, to be lenient on crime. And in fact, the defense attorney was shocked that she personally took such interest in this case. She personally prosecuted this case and demanded that he be charged because in so many previous cases, she had been lenient against crime. She couldn't figure out why is she going so hard against this dad. Yep. But this is a pattern that we see with all of these Soros-backed prosecutors. And there was a recent, there was a recent high-profile case in Oregon where you had a white guy, uh, his girlfriend was being hit on by a black guy. He got in a fight. He shot the black guy, pulled out a gun and shot him. And now they're throwing the book at him like they're trying to put him away for life. And this was this is a Soros sponsored prosecutor who normally does not go hard against criminals. They're normally leaning against criminal criminals. But whenever it's a non-black criminal, all of these Soros sponsored prosecutors, they throw the book at you. And, and so this is the, this is why it's so important that Mayoris get yes. elected because one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to remove the ability of these local Soros-backed prosecutors to do what they're doing, which is going lenient on black criminals and basically discriminating against non-black Americans and then going hard against people who stand up and defend themselves against criminals. And what he wants to do, and this is something that Youngkin has said that he supports, is to pass a bill through the legislature, get Youngkin to sign it. That would allow him to remove these prosecutors who violate their oaths of office or at least overrule their decisions. That would be so, so good. And even more specifically, too, Miaris has promised that as attorney general, he will open an investigation into the Loudoun County Public Schools over that rape case. Because remember, mm -hmm. they covered it up. They quietly moved the kid to another school so that he could rape another girl because it was in late May. It's right before June, which is Pride Month, and they didn't want you know this transgender rapist to be publicized right before Pride Month because of their bathroom policies. So he specifically said, I am going to prosecute. I'm going to look into the officials at LCPS who covered this up, and there's going to be consequences. So that's why it's so important that not just the governor won and not just lieutenant governor, but also the attorney general, and again, the House of Delegates. The state Senate is not up until 2023, and that is still a narrow Democrat majority, but certainly there were articles pointing out that other, the more moderate parts of Youngkin's platform, the typical Republican parts, like his tax cuts, namely 
his pledge to repeal both the grocery tax and the gas tax could probably get Democrat support in the state Senate because certainly with inflation right now, you know, killing people at the mm -hmm. gas pump and at the grocery store. So there are things he certainly can do even with Democrats in the upper chamber, but there is a lot that he can do with the executive order. He only serves one term. He can't run for re-election, So he's got nothing to lose. He might as well just go all in and do whatever he wants. And if he does honor his promises, he will only fire up the base even more. He'll basically be, I don't think he'll be as great as DeSantis, but he could definitely gin up enthusiasm with these DeSantis-like moves to get enough support for maybe Lieutenant Governor Winston Sears to run to take his place or Miaris or whoever runs as the Republican nominee in 2025. Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword when you only got one-term governors because in a sense, the governor can go all out and just basically yep. push the state to the fringes like we saw with Ralph Northam. Uh, but at the same time, if, if the people elect a governor with an agenda, he can go ahead and, you know, push full, you know, pedal to the metal on that agenda without having to wait, okay, you know, weigh re-election because he can't run for re-election. So it's, it's, it is kind of a... He's got nothing you know, to lose. There's some give and take to that. But... um. So I want, I want to move on a little bit. So a lot of this is where we're pointing out issues. You got the grocery tax, you got the gas tax, you got what schools, uh, you know, the parental control over education. There's different issues that people were concerned about when they voted. But a lot of people are just completely ignoring the issues and they're saying, no, that's not why people voted for Yunkin. They didn't vote for him based on, on the kitchen table issues or on social issues. It's all about race, that this is the reinvigoration of white supremacy. This is This is fascism coming to the surface. Umer Hawk, I prefer to pronounce his last name as Hack. He is probably the most prominent political writer on Medium, medium.com. He has 171,000 followers. He's one of the top content creators. Again, probably the top political content creator. I haven't found a single political content creator on that site that is more prominent, more, more widely read than he is. He is a consultant based in London. He's the founder of Havas Media Lab, which is the media arm of marketing communications for the group Havas, which connect, which allows – they're basically consultants that are hired by businesses to advertise and connect uh, businesses to potential customers. This is what he writes. How Youngkin resurrected American fascism. He writes, I grew oh, up in Virginia. Let me tell you some ugly truths about white rage fascism and why America is made of both. It was a disastrous night in America, not just for the Democrats, but for democracy. How did Glenn Youngkin win? Hadn't America learned anything from the Trump years? What just happened? I'm going to pepper this essay with my story about growing up in Virginia. It almost killed me. Before my parents brought me to Virginia, I was a bright, vivacious, funny, optimistic kid. After they did, I became depressed, anxious, terrified, because I understood instinctively on an animal level that I was prey. It wasn't just some kind of teenage feeling. I was uh, abused and assaulted almost every day of my little life and every adult and every adult in my life. Teachers, coaches, counselors, principals, let it sometimes made it happen over and over again. Hunted, hated, despised, brutalized. Nobody should have to live that way. Welcome to Virginia, kid. By now, I've lived all over the world, and I can safely say that Virginia, a.k.a. the American South, is the single most racist, hateful, and bigoted place I have ever lived. It was the single worst thing to happen to me ever, period, to grow up in such a place. I only survived it because the gay community took care of me, seeing how incredibly I was, wounded I was, even though I wasn't gay, and thank the stars, I escaped a year later to Canada. I, I was going to say that this guy, I, I was going to make a joke that like, oh, was he was he being teased? Was he being harassed for being gay? Because he may not actually be homosexual, but he definitely sounds gay right now. <laughs> well, it gets better. If I hadn't, I really don't think I'd really don't know where I'd be today if I'd be today. If? Why does it matter? Well, because do you know that what Virginia really is, what the South really is? I do. And the economist in me, too, can tell you something about how societies collapse into youngkinism. 
Youngkinism. Youngkinism. That actually has a nice ring to it. Yeah, it does. Uh, almost as good as American runs on Youngkin. I don't know if you heard that one. That was. I, I, I did hear about that. I don't know where that came from, but I did hear that. He describes Youngkin as fascism in khakis and fleece vests. Hate with an all shucks grin as parents erupt into a frenzy of supremacy. Let's get that. Oh my goodness. What This guy literally lived in a bubble. And I don't mean like a sheltered worldview. Did he actually live in a giant hamster bubble to surround himself and protect himself from germs every day? That seriously is what I'm picturing in my head right now. The bubble boy from Seinfeld. That's what I'm picturing right now. He writes, I'd been, I'd been predicting privately to my friends in Virginia for many weeks that Youngkin was going to win. Yes, really. When they asked me why, I'd shrug and point to my recent essays on fascism. Of course, he links to his, which I had to plug his essays on fascism. Of course, buy my all, book. You yeah, guys got to buy my book. You got to buy my book. Read my essays. Because, of course, he gets paid whenever – that's the way Medium um, – they, they pay per click, per read-through. And how it was poised to resurge. They'd look at me like it couldn't possibly happen, and here we are. So how did Glenn Youngkin win? There are two ways to ask that question. One, how did Democrats lose? Two, what did Youngkin do successfully? Let's take a look at those questions one by one. The simple grim fact is that Youngkin won by triggering the politics of white rage. How did I know that Youngkin was going to win? You could feel it. I'm in Virginia at the moment, back where I grew up, and it doesn't feel right. You can literally feel the tension in the air. I walk my little puppy down the street across from my neighborhood. Suddenly, you cross a line into a working class area, and it's peppered with Youngkin signs, angrily. They're angrily. They're peppered. angry signs. He even yeah. asked that question. How can you raise a sign angrily? Well, you can make a bigger one than the Black Lives Matter sign across oh, the street. Oh, my goodness. So if it's bigger than the BLM sign across the street, then you raise that sign angrily. My can, sign is bigger than yours. You can festoon every tree in your yard with pictures of Yunkin. I haven't seen any pictures of Yunkin in people's creepy, yard. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes me think that the guy's just making all this stuff yeah, up yeah. because there are no pictures of Yunkin anywhere in people's yards. They have Yunkin signs. It's, it's the name. Yeah, the name with the logo. His campaign logo was literally – it was actually smart. It was his name with the state of Virginia, the shape mm -hmm. of the state of Virginia, which is actually quite nice. But, but, but yeah. according to this guy, there's people with pictures of Yunkin in their yards, which tells you he's just making the whole thing up this sounds, like from yeah, start to finish, even his uh, stories of childhood. This definitely sounds about as real as all the le the liberals on Twitter who say like my eight year old child cried with joy when Hillary when Hillary won the nomination. Like yeah, okay, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna press X to doubt that one, buddy. But he goes on. You could feel it in the air, the white rage. A lot of people won't like me saying that, but it's the truth. At least if you have experience with authoritarian collapse, there's a certain feeling that sits in. A kind of hardening takes place. Neighbor begins to treat neighbor with contempt. That is exactly what I literally saw happening before my eyes. These were people who I'd live, who'd lived together next door for years, probably decades, and now they were having bitter conflicts waged with symbols. You know, like a McAuliffe sign across from a Yunkin sign. That's a bitter conflict waged with symbols. Today it's signs. Tomorrow it's guns. That's how society's collapsed. We better ban those yard signs. I'll tell you what. It's going to lead to guns tomorrow. <laughs> if, we like, need sign control right now. So we need sign control immediately. We need to ban the uh, assault assault signs. Assault signs, max capacity signs. They, they got to go, man. If, like me, you've lived it before, then you could feel it in the air. The hate. You could see it on the faces of white Virginians. There's a certain expression that comes over a social group before it resorts to authoritarianism and fascism. It's somewhere between a smirk and a sneer. You're going to get yours, asshole. We're not going to put up with you anymore. We're going to show you who's boss. You could literally see this expression on the faces of white Virginians, at least if you look. So he's a mind reader now. This guy This guy apparently has telepathy. That's, that's cool. If, he, if, he, but he, if, you had to look, if you look the right way, you could see it. A certain frenzy come, comes over a society as it's about to push the fascism button. The in, where, where can we find that now? It's, it's, a, it's a great big – it's like the Staples button. It's a, it's a red button with the word fascism on it. And you press it and it says, that was easy. The in, <laughs> the in group, the pure and true, come alive. The pure and true, the pure-blooded and white Americans. 
They rejoice with hate. They suddenly develop social bonds where none existed before. So that's and this is this is very telling because one of the things of progressivism, one of their major pushes is to break down natural social bonds in society. They mm -hmm. want to come between the parent and the child. They want to come between the husband and the wife. They want to completely break down these normal, organic social bonds. They want to destroy the church relationship, like the the local community church, so people end up developing their all their social bonds turn in college. Turn, turn neighbors against each other. Like, oh, if your neighbor has a different yard sign from you, you must be enemies. But according to this guy, if you have social bonds uh, developing where none existed before, which should be a good thing, we want people to develop social bonds. That's, that's how community. you drive. That's, that's how you drive down suicide rates. It's how you drive down depression rates. It's how you drive up happiness rates. But apparently, this is creating a fascistic environment. Now they're part of a tribe, united by resentment, vengeance, and rage. You could feel and see that, too. If you happen to pass by a Yunkin rally, what would you see? Exactly the same expression as Trump used to produce and still does. That wide-eyed adulation, the sense of being in the presence of a true demagogue, the magic trick of hate. There's a hard truth that has to be faced right now. White Virginians were seduced by demagoguery. That's the hard truth to face if you only know your – that's a hard truth to face only if you don't know your history. Virginia's always been a racist hellhole. I can say that because, like I said, I grew up in Virginia. Don't take it from me personally, though I can assure you that the racism, hate, and bigotry I experienced, even as a little boy in Virginia, from everyone from my teachers to coaches to random strangers, was so incredible, so vitriolic, so omnipresent that I was suicidal by the age of 14. This guy's got some serious problems. Like, he seriously uh, needs this, some help. Actually, yeah, like, he really should just play some video games, bro. Video games definitely would have helped you out yeah. at that point. Like, I cannot imagine what this guy did for fun in his spare time, if he did anything for fun. Well, he definitely had no social life. I, well, uh, yeah, because he says, I could tell you how I was assaulted brutally every day of my little life just for being not being white, and every adult in my life laughed at me. Uh, now, who... Who would believe that? Like, who literally believes that? I would, I'm, I guess, gonna, I'm guessing this guy. What is he black? Is he Mexican? He is white. He's, like, if you look at him, the guy's white. He's he's he might be from I don't know. I can't really tell where he's from. His last name is Hawk H A Q U E, which is French. I was gonna say so. His first name is Umer, which is I guess a French version of Omar. Omar, yeah. So he might be Eastern Arab, stuff. but if you look at the guy, he looks white. Like, if he grew up, if he actually did grow up in Virginia, if he's not just making the whole thing up. I can't imagine his Virginia playmates looking at him as anything other than white because the guy literally looks white. And you can tell maybe he's got, you know, some Mediterranean look to him, maybe an Arabic look. But Arabs have always been considered white in America. At no point, even back in the 1800s, Arabs, people who were from present-day Saudi Arabia, they were considered white if they immigrated here. So I don't know. And the guys if he wasn't white passing, you cannot convince me. Uh, how old is this guy? When did he grow up? Uh, I think he was born in the early 70s. So. Okay, you can't convince me at all that this guy, wherever he went, white parents would laugh at him just because of how he looks. That he goes to the grocery store and ad adults, grown adults, just start laughing at him. I'm sorry. And no. he was brutally assaulted every day of his little life. He's got scar. He's got the scars to prove it, I'll bet. But he goes on. But forget about my story, which is the story of any minority. Just look at the facts. Virginia was one of the last states to properly desegregate. Virginia was home to the massive resistance and historic push by white politicians to prevent desegregation. Virginia was also home to the Loving v. Virginia case where an interracial couple was arrested in 1967 for getting married. All of this stuff happened before this guy was born. Yeah. And he even says that in the next paragraph. I was born just a few years later. And what's interesting is he says, I'm married to a beautiful and lovely lady today, a white one. Oh, wow. Oh. He's married to a white lady. How does he deal with the self-hatred every day, knowing that his kids will be half white? Yeah, I don't know. Would we have been jailed for it then? Forcibly divorced, separated at gunpoint? No, because he would have been considered white. This. Like, even if he had been born in the 30s and his parents had come here in the 20s 
and he married a white Virginian, he would have been considered white. Like this is this is so stupid. Even today, Virginia is super, super backwards. It's not West Virginia, no, but it's close. Oh. And he brings up Charlottesville. Remember the alt-right? That happened in Charlottesville. So he goes oh. on. So Youngkin came along and triggered the politics of white rage. What on earth are white Americans so angry about? And he tries to make the argument that white Americans have it great because they're at the top of the totem pole, that they're they're immediately given calls by employers if they happen to be white and they put out their resume, whereas non-whites are completely ignored, which is not the truth at all. That, in that fact, it's the exact opposite. So many times. Employers want to hire especially foreigners like him or his parents because they don't have to pay them as Cheap much. Cheap labor. We literally talked about that in the last episode. So if anything, ago. we have we have the exact opposite form of discrimination that he expresses. But it's not just that. There's also all of the uh, all the civil rights laws that are on the books. There's all the affirmative action laws that are on the books. They have to worry about potential discrimination lawsuits if they don't hire non-whites. They have to make sure it, there's also the media scrutiny. Like the media is completely dominated by people who have his mentality and his mindset. So if a company doesn't diversify, then they're going to immediately get hit with the trove of news articles talking about how racist they are. So the guys live in a completely parallel universe. Even back in the 80s, this was the case. I was going to say, if this guy were literally given the presidency of the United States without even having to run in an election, he would still find something to complain about. Like, clearly nothing would satisfy this guy. He is the kind of person who just moans and whines and complains about everything. Mm -hmm. And it's been said, it is kind of, you know, it's it's a bit cliche, but it's true. Leftists are just fundamentally unhappy people. They're miserable. They look for something to whine about. They look for injustices where they don't exist rather than normal people who just go about their lives. They have bad days and they have good days, but they go about their lives knowing that they're, they're going to work that job, they're going to provide for their families, whatever. This guy is just fundamentally miserable. I and almost, I almost feel bad for him. Keyword being almost, but I don't. No, I don't. And you can tell, here's another clue that you can tell. He's probably just making it all up because he says, like I said, you could see it if you walk down any suburban street. The Dems were shocked by Yunkin's win because they don't do things like that. They don't, they don't walk do down things streets? like that. I don't know what he was talking about. So that's a poorly written. But what? if they had, they'd see the bitter. We I think he means that their Dems aren't racist like Republicans. I guess that's what he's saying. They can't he's read just, minds like he can. I guess. Or unless he's saying if they don't walk down, see the Dems were shocked by Yunkin's win because they don't do things like walk down any suburban street. But whatever. Uh, anyway, so he says if they had, they'd seen the bitter, weird sign wars I mentioned. Ones often accompanied by proud school flags too. So that's another way that you know he's maybe he saw this one time and he extrapolated to everyone or he's just making it up because i mean again we you know we we live in virginia i live in northern virginia and this doesn't you don't have yunkin signs next to proud school flags what is he even talking about schools don't even have flags so people may wonder okay why are you bringing this guy up well i bring this guy up because he does have quite an outsized influence i mean medium is trafficked by about 40 million people a week they've got i think it's like uh, I mean, they've got millions and millions of users, millions and millions of tens of millions of readers who read this stuff. And I realize a lot of it is is uh, foreign readership, but they do have – I mean uh, most American liberals are on medium. Like they read this stuff, and this guy is the biggest political influencer on that site. So it's not like he's a complete nobody. He writes, but of course supremacist parents want to transmit their values to their kids. That is how supremacy stays a system. My dad told me to hate minorities, to insult, degrade, mock, hate, assault them. My teachers think it's funny and cute when I do. That is how I became a little supremacist too. And now, 20 years later, I'm going to do the same thing to my kid. And this is his attitude. This is what he thinks. He thinks that white Virginian parents, 
their attitude is, well, my dad taught me to hate minorities, so I'm going to teach my kid – like this is an intentional thing. I'm going to teach my kid to hate minorities as well. And of course, this is the viewpoint that a lot of progressives genuinely have, even white progressives who just live in their you know, willy, lily-white urban areas, their little, their little hipster communities who haven't actually gotten out and met somebody who is in real America – um, this is the kind of propaganda that people are actually fed and believe that white people in general in America, especially in the South, that they were taught from a young age, like as little kids, to hate minorities. And this is the reason why they support critical race theory in schools, because they see it as a defensive mechanism to counteract the propaganda that these kids are receiving at home, because they literally believe that white parents teach their kids to hate non-white people in the home. So they figured the least we can do is try to provide some counterbalancing propaganda in the schools to teach white kids not to hate non-white kids. It, it's this is so sick. It's beyond it's, it's beyond belief. It's delusion. They're reinforcing their own delusions. And my favorite part about this is that if anything, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. White people are not racist. White people are perfectly fine to just go about their day. To accepting, you know, that their kid is going to go play with, you know, the, the little black boy next door. Like, yeah, we, we don't care. We don't care. But then they pull this crap with the schools, with the government, with the media, and they beat white parents over the head with you're racist and your kids are racist. We're teaching your kids that they're racist. We're teaching your kids to hate themselves. We're teaching them that you are racist. And if you dare disagree with us, we're going to dox you. We're going to call the police to beat you. And we're going to have the Department of Justice label you domestic terrorists. And that leads to what has been said. I've been seeing seeing this in a few articles, mainstream media, they're saying that the anti-critical race theory push is a new form of white identity. And you could argue that's technically true at this point because they are being driven, they are forcing these parents to do this. They are forcing white voters and especially rural white voters, non-college white voters, they're forcing them to that point because all they are hearing from the media, from schools, from their own president is white people are terrible and we need to spend our lives just apologizing to minorities for everything of racist America has done. So, of course, when a candidate like Youngkin comes along who says, I'm going to be against critical race theory, white voters are going to turn around and say, sure, fine, I'll vote for this guy as long as he says he's going to ban the thing that is telling my kids to hate me and to hate themselves. We're not going to deal with that. We, enough. We are tired of this. We are willing to be non-racist. But again, according to the left, oh, if you say you're not racist, then it actually means you're racist. You can't win with these people. You really cannot win with these people. And this ties back as well, again, the fact that he calls Yunkin. Yunkin is a fascist. Yunkin is Trump 2.0, whatever, whatever. You know, Van Jones referred to Yunkin. He said, Yunkin is the Delta variant of Trumpism. That's why I think it is so good. And Yunkin was smart about this. He didn't waste any time bashing Trump because he knew he was going to get compared to Trump regardless. I mean, even Mitt Romney still gets compared to Trump. He figured they're going to call me Trump 2.0 anyway, so I might as well just embrace the president's endorsement, court his voters, and go right along with it. You know, Rather than just bending over backwards and saying, no, no, I promise I'm not like Trump. Because then it's a lose-lose. You don't have the left on your side regardless, and you lose the Trump voters as well. The New York Times recently highlighted the problems that Democrats are having in rural areas. It's getting so bad that rural areas in America are almost going as hardcore for Republicans as black voters have gone for Democrats over the past 40 years. And this is becoming a very, very worrying trend to a lot of Democratic pundits, pollsters, and party apparatchiks. So this is from the New York Times. The belief was in part that the party had already bottomed out there, especially that's in the rural areas that the party had already bottomed out there, especially during the Trump era, when Republicans had run up the numbers of white voters in rural areas to dizzying new heights. Virginia, however, is proof it can get worse. 
In 2008, there were only four small Virginia counties where Republicans won 70 percent or more of the vote in that year's presidential race. So only four counties that, uh, where Republicans, where McCain won 70 percent or more of the vote. So that, that tells you there was a lot of rural white support in Virginia for Obama. Yep. Nowhere was the party above 75 percent. This year, Mr. Youngkin was above 70 percent in 45 counties, and he surpassed 80 percent in 15 of them. That is insane. That That is absolutely – yeah, I've even never Trump, seen that before in my life. Even Trump did not get that in 2016 mm -hmm. or 2020. From 1999 to 2019, cities swung 14 percentage points toward Democrats according to a 2020 Pew Research Center report. At the same time, rural areas shifted by 19 percentage points toward Republicans. The suburbs remained essentially tied. And I'll just add on this. The solution, of course, for Republicans is to tie the suburbs culturally and economically to rural areas and vice versa. Don't tie the suburbs to urban areas. In other words, don't give up public transportation to Democrats. Make that a conservative position. Mm -hmm. Make sure that the rural people interact with suburban people and vice versa because that's how you've got to tie people in culturally if you want to tie them in together politically. And this is what historians point out, that the reason why the Midwest went so hard for the Union during the Civil War is because of the railroad. Even though a lot of the people in the Midwest, their ancestors had been Virginians, they had migrated to the Midwest from Virginia or Kentucky or Maryland, they sided with the Union overwhelmingly because the railroad connected them economically, socially, and culturally to the Northeast Coast. So it was much easier for them to travel to New York and Boston and interact with people on the Northeast Coast and they, many of them never interacted with Southerners. And this is how the Republicans can defeat the urban minority, and I mean political minority, not ethnic minority, but the, the political minority in urban areas and academia is by tying the suburbs to rural areas, by you know getting in high-speed rail, getting in, you know, making sure that you have infrastructure that's tying these areas in, tie them in, create incentives for businesses to not just come create jobs in the suburbs, but in rural areas as well. They asked Ethan Winter, who is a senior analyst for the Democrat for the leftist group Data for Progress. He studies voter behavior. They asked him what the bottom is for Democrats in rural areas. He said, quote, in rural America, the bottom for the Democratic Party is zero. I'm serious about this. Zero. And he's not wrong. He's he's actually not wrong. I mean, you see counties that are going more than 75, like 15 counties that go over 80 percent Republican. I mean, that's not that's 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 insane. And it's like uh, you said, that's literally the equivalent of which black voters go for Democrats. Mm hmm. Irene Lynn, she's the county executive in uh, Tom Nelson's Senate campaign in Wisconsin. She's a Democrat, and she said – she uh, this is a quote she gave to Politico. She said, wine moms won't save us. Need the beer moms. And she is 100 percent correct. You know, Democrats, they just figured they could completely ignore rural voters and just write them off as a bunch of rubes who are eventually going to die out from opioid overdoses. This is why I don't really uh, give a crap about opioid overdoses because it's killing their political opponents. They, didn't, mm -hmm. they just really don't care. And so they figured you know, there's no need to – we can just completely ignore them. And the thing is, like Obama was considered an elitist, but Obama actually paid more attention to rural white people yep. than anybody the Democratic Party has since Obama. I mean, he went and campaigned in rural North Carolina and places like that, and that's one of the reasons why he won North Carolina and Virginia. And he won Indiana too, for that matter. Just one example I wanted to cite of the massive rural turnout. Again, this is from Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report. Augusta County, Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. In 2017, Ed Gillespie, the Republican nominee, got 17,217 votes to Ralph Northam's 6,030. 17,000 to 6,000. In 2021, McAuliffe got about 7,000, so just 1,000 more than Northam. Yunkin got 26,000. That's a 9,000 vote increase, whereas McAuliffe basically saw no increase from Northam whatsoever. He, attach he attaches as a bit of commentary to this note. 
quote, Yunkin juiced base GOP turnout in rural counties to a degree McAuliffe couldn't match in urban Virginia. So that's just one example of the massive rural turnout, whereas urban and, you know, the heavily urban areas like the northeastern counties didn't really turn out that much. And if you look at the New York Times, and we'll include a link to this particular tweet as well, John McCormick tweeted this. He's the Washington correspondent at the National Review. And it was a graphic from the New York Times election coverage. And it shows how much of a shift in either party direction there was in Virginia. And it's the map of Virginia. And every single county, they have like a blue arrow pointing to the left for a leftward shift and a red arrow pointing to the right for a rightward shift. Every single county has a red arrow pointing to the right. And some the longer the arrow is, the harder the shift. There's not a single blue arrow on this map. Every single county in the state of Virginia, even the northeastern ones, trended further to the right in this race compared to the 2020 presidential election just one year prior. And that is largely due to the rural turnout, of course, but also to McAuliffe underperforming in even the northeastern counties, which is a huge deal. Yeah, the reason is because the Democrats don't have anything to run on. I mean, you think about McAuliffe. What was he running on? What what issue, what main issue or two issues can you point to and say, okay, if people who were voting for McAuliffe were voting for him because of this? There was no issue. What it really came down to, and we saw this in the final weeks of the election, McAuliffe, very much like Hillary, got this sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. He felt entitled to return to the governor's mansion. I was governor once before. I've got the name recognition. People just vote for me because they know me. That's why he won the primary in a landslide. But he was just convinced, oh, I I deserve this. You know, I've done it before. I can do it again. A lot of his ads said, Terry has been here before. Mm -hmm. Terry knows how to run this state. It was purely name recognition. It was like Hillary Clinton, last name entitles him to this position of power. And that's why in those final weeks, he got so arrogant. I think this was another thing that did him in. It was conversely, both Youngkin did really well and McAuliffe just self-destructed. He started walking out of interviews. Whenever interviews (laughs) asked him about education, about critical race theory, he was on a a local outlet with a woman who was interviewing him. And three times, not hostile at all, she asked, you know, could you define critical race theory? You say it's a racist dog whistle. What is critical race theory to you that makes it a dog whistle? He refused to define it. Three times he refused to define it. And at one point she said, he said, oh, it's it's a racist dog whistle. She then responded with, well, how can you define it if, how, how can you say it's racist if you won't define it? And he was like, well, basically asked, well, why don't you just ask me better questions? Like, <laughs> and then, of course, there was another interview where he straight up just pulled the lapel mic out and just got up and walked off because the questioner kept asking about education. And as he's walking off on a hot mic, you can hear him say, you know, you should ask questions that your viewers care about. To which the reporter said, I did. Mm-hmm. So he just got well, The arrogant. reason why he's so arrogant, the reason why Democrats in general can be this arrogant is because they see Democrat, uh, they see demographics as destiny. And this was something that Repu- this is something the Republicans don't want to talk about. At least the party doesn't want to talk about. But this is something that you know five ten years ago Democrats would not talk about. It was something they knew was on their side, but they wouldn't discuss. Yep. But now they're very open about it. In fact, they're you know got Joe Biden bragging about that eventually white people are going to be a minority, and that's a yep. good thing. And right before the election, McAuliffe was talking to a group of Hispanics, yep. and he basically told them to get busy and start making babies faster so they can get to 11 percent of the population. Right now they're at 10 percent, and I think he was looking at the at the internal polling. He was like, well, if we could just get Hispanics to 11 percent, then we could have this in the bag. And so basically just telling, you know, up your percentage so well, you can give us more Democratic babies. And <laughs> what's interesting is if Latino, Latinos didn't really have, according to exit polls, which you can take them with a grain of salt, but according to the exit polls, Latinos made up 5% of the electorate, which is low considering they're 10% yeah. of the population of Virginia. And if the, Latinos had voted with their population percentage, though, it would have given McAuliffe – I did the math on this before the episode. If Latinos had voted with their uh, population percentage, in other words, if they had been 10 percent of the electorate instead of 5 percent and still voted at the same percentage, so they went 
they went two to one for McAuliffe. Mm -hmm. If they had voted that same percentage, it would have increased. It would have given McAuliffe an additional fifty three thousand seven hundred votes above what Youngkin would have gained from the increased turnout. That would have narrowed Youngkin's victory to about nineteen thousand. So it would have made it a razor thin. He still but, would have won, but he ultimately would have won by a narrow margin. At that point, that would have been the same. That was less than the number of votes that the one other candidate on the governor ballot got, uh, Princess Blanding, who's basically the BLM candidate. She's running on a defund the police platform. McAuliffe won the first time only because a libertarian screwed over Ken Cuccinelli. So if he were to then turn around and lose because a BLM defund the police candidate screwed him over, that would have been that would have been sweet justice. But in the end, Youngkin won by a big enough margin that didn't even matter. But remember, McAuliffe told Hispanic voters they need to get busy and get their numbers to 11 yeah. percent. So he knows if that had happened, if they were 11 percent rather than 10 percent and they voted according to their population, you would have had a difference instead of having 71,880 difference between McAuliffe and Yunkin, which is what happened. You would have only had a difference of 7,550, which would have prompted a recount. Yep. And that so, would be less than like, what, less than half a percent? The final percentage margin of victory for Youngkin was uh, over 2%. This is why Democrats understand that they really don't have to bring any solutions to the table for America's problems. They understand they can afford to ignore rural voters. They can afford to completely ignore working class white voters no matter where they live because the numbers are all on their side. All they have to do is keep that border open. Yep, keep, keep the immigrants the flooding into the state. Because, again, if, they, if you boost – if you keep running up the numbers of Latino voters in Virginia, eventually Youngkin can't win. It doesn't matter how much white parents are against critical race. It doesn't matter what the issues are. McAuliffe literally does not have to do anything. All he has to do is go before – these minority voters and say, hey, I'm on your side. Vote for me. And I'll give you amnesty. I'll give amnesty to all your family members. Yep. And they and, you know, the numbers are there. All you got to do. And if you I just ran it with 11 percent, if you boost the Hispanic numbers in Virginia to 12 percent, 13 percent, 14 percent, definitely. McAuliffe then, would win. Yeah, McAuliffe would win, even with the numbers that we saw in that previous election. But the only reason why Youngkin's able to win is because he's keeping, you know, because so far a lot of Hispanics in Virginia don't vote. They're not mm -hmm. they're not motivated to vote. In something like this, like even in the presidential election, they only voted seven percent. And the important thing to remember from this, too, is that this is further proof. We should not pander on immigration. No more gang of a amnesty bills, DACA, none of that stuff, the, that moderate Republican strain of, yes, let's support more immigration because the only ethnic group Yunkin won were white voters. And again, by a massive margin. And they are the largest ethnic group in the in the state of Virginia right now. So, no, we don't need to pander to immigration uh, at all. So, so one of the things that's really concerning for Democrats is if you look at the breakdown of age, because normally young voters go overwhelmingly Democrat, like yep. sometimes by 30 to 40 percentage points. Like it's just ridiculous numbers. But if you look at the age breakdown, this is this has got to be extremely concerning. In the presidential election last year, Biden won the 18 to 29 year olds with 62 percent of the vote. He in beat Virginia. Trump 60 yeah, in Virginia, 62 to 33 percent. This time around, though, McAuliffe only won 52 to 47 percent. So at the crux of Youngkin's victory, above all else, was one particular voting block along race and gender. And that is white women, specifically non-college educated white women. In 2020, in the state of Virginia, Biden won white women 50% to Trump's 49%, a one-point margin, a very narrow margin of victory. This year, Youngkin got 57% of them to McAuliffe's 43%. And this was big for me. I thought this was the biggest number of the night for me as far as demographics go. In 2020, in Virginia, Trump got 56% of this group to Biden's 44%. In this election... Youngkin got 75% to Biden's 
to McAuliffe's 25%. That is absolutely astounding. That number, I think, right there is why Youngkin won this entire election. Yeah, and as soon as Youngkin won, you immediately saw all the legacy media outlets releasing their hit pieces on white women because it wasn't just like normally it would be Vox or Vice would be some of the more fringe left-wing sites. But no, you've got Boston Globe, Washington Post, New York Times. Boston Globe ran an article saying white women voters in the dismantling of democracy. And it's, it's written by Renee Graham. She points out how, of course, how the white women went 57 percent for Youngkin how 63% of Alabama white uh, women voted for Roy Moore. And she's arguing, she's making the point that these white women are clearly racist and they're clearly trying to uphold the system of white supremacy because they're voting against their interests because it's in uh, white women's and all women's interest to protect abortion rights. It's in all white women's interest to take down the patriarchy and all this other stuff. But the thing is, in these exit polls, it showed that only 8% of Virginian voters saw abortion as a major issue. And of those 8%, 60% voted for Yunkin. So the abortion issue is clearly on the side of conservatives. The pro-life yeah. position has won out in public opinion. Most people who are pro-choice don't have this as one of their top issues. Now, if you break down the polling, most – like a slight majority of Virginians want abortion to be legal in some cases. But as far as Yunkin's take, Yunkin's position on it, he had a clear majority behind him. This is why I criticized Yunkin in the last time we talked about this. His position on the Texas bill – was yep. simply wrong. He didn't. He was wrong in that he was. Uh, he assumed that it would hurt him politically, and the exit polls showed that it wouldn't hurt him politically because most liberals really don't care about abortion anymore. It's not one of their top issues. And if you ask liberals what they think about abortion, you find a lot of them are actually pro-life. Like a lot of liberals actually think that abortion should be illegal after the first trimester, except in the case of the health or life of the mother. Abortion is coming to an end in America very soon. Yes, and this is something that uh, conservatives really need to get behind. But see, uh, people like this lady, Renee Graham, they still assume that you're living in the 80s and 90s when like 70% of women were pro-choice. And she's saying that the reason why you know that white women are racist, that they're trying to uphold white supremacy, is because they're voting against pro-choice politicians, which is, she assumes is against their best interests, in order to uphold these conservative white politicians who are going to protect white supremacy. And the New York Times ran the headline, White Racial Anxiety Strikes Again. And again, now, there would be no racial anxiety among white people if you weren't constantly lecturing them that they're evil. Crazy concept, right? Well, again, this goes back to the idea that white people, because they're a shrinking demographic, they can completely be discounted. But even if you buy into that, it's going to be the 2040s or 2050s before that's ever a reality. In the meantime, if, if they continue to discount white voters, white voters are going to be able to elect Republicans who are going to stop the process of de-whitifying America, in which case their dream of the 2040s and 2050s will never be made a reality. Some progressives are starting to realize this, and they're trying to sound the warning call before it's too late. Ryan Cooper of The Week writes, Operating disdain for white people is bad politics. Why liberals need to stop doing collective guilt over election results. And he goes into this piece by Wajahat Ali in the Daily Beast in which he blamed all the Karens for Terry McAuliffe's loss, in which he wrote, Democrats must finally stop chasing Amy and Karen and start chasing Stacey. Lean on women of color in a multicultural coalition that will inspire and bring out voters of color who are your base and help deliver you Georgia and Arizona. So again, he's going into like, just let's forget white people already and let's just focus on non-white voters. And Cooper writes, this is a stupid and counterproductive argument. Liberals' habit of collective guilt and collective responsibility to explain election outcomes needs to stop. Secondly, operating disdain for white people is politically daft. Non-Hispanic white people make up about 60% of the American population. Actually, the real number is more like 67, 68% when you allow Hispanics to consider themselves white. 
As a matter of simple arithmetic, it is impossible to win a national election without winning a substantial portion of those voters, of white voters. Consider the 2020 election in white men who vote Republican at even higher rates than white women. If the Biden campaign had been following Ali's line of thinking, it would have written them off even more firmly than white women. In reality, white men were the only race slash gender grouping that moved towards Biden relative to Hillary Clinton. Every single other one, black men and women, Latinos and Latinas, the at least he doesn't use Latinx, and <laughs> white women all swung towards Trump. But white men went eight percentage points toward Biden. And this was huge in Virginia, like a Youngkin won white men by a landslide, whereas Trump barely won white men in Virginia, which is why he lost the state. Mm-hmm. And why I lost the election. But more fundamentally, assigning collective guilt for election results is simply prejudice by definition. And now he gets into the moral argument, which you very rarely see from liberals. Liberals only start thinking, you know what, maybe it's immoral to discriminate against white people when they start losing elections. When you start beating them at the polls, then they start wondering, hmm, maybe we should read J.D. Vance's book. Because it's funny, you know, mm-hmm. J.D. Vance became a bestseller. Obviously, he was a bestseller before Trump won election, but his book sales shot up tremendously after Trump won election. It was a lot of liberals buying his book, basically basically trying to figure out why we lost. And this is, you know, it's funny, you know, it takes beating at the polls to finally get liberals to uh, think ethically it might not be a good idea to discriminate against white people. But the NAACP president, Ben Jealous, actually gives the path forward if Republicans would like to translate their new gain majority into long-term Reagan-like supermajorities across the country and turn the 2020s into a Republican decade. He writes in AmsterdamNews.com, quote, we can't let the 2022 elections be dominated by bogus culture war issues drummed up by right-wing politicians. They that- must be about making economic opportunity, health care, and quality education available to all Americans, no matter their color or where they live. They must be about protecting our democracy and right to vote. So I would say I would say he's completely correct, but you need to look at this um, from, if you look at it from our perspective, from if you t- and give the right take on his take. We can't let the 2020 election, 2022 elections be dominated by bogus culture war issues drummed up by right-wing politicians. I would argue that the culture war issues that are on our side because they decided to go all in on Black Lives Matter last year. Yep. If they hadn't done that, they would still we would still be at parity with the culture war. But because they decided to demonize white people, we're still – again, we're still 65 to 70 percent of the population – the numbers are on our side. We're going to win the culture wars. The Yunkins of 2022 are going to win. Absolutely. You simply can't win with critical race theory, not that's with why. America's demographics, what they are right now. So we've already got the high ground on that. That's that's sealed. On the other issues, he says they must be about making economic opportunity, health care and quality education available to all Americans. And this is Republicans Achilles heel. Yep. Because voters, even white voters, most white voters trust the Democrats to take better care of them economically than they trust Republicans. They support them on welfare. That's why the Democrats in Congress are now rushing to get Biden's agenda passed. Mm -hmm. They passed the infrastructure bill. They're working on the social spending bill. If they pass those things, there will be a decent amount of well, certainly, you know, all other non-white voters, but even white voters who will turn around and say, oh, wow, yeah, you passed an infrastructure bill. Thanks. And that will absolutely be something they can use, if nothing else, to turn to their base and say, look, we gave you what you wanted. We passed these bills we said we would pass. But another thing that Jealous points out is he says, so obviously economic opportunity, health care, quality education. If Republicans would lean into that as well as the social issues, they could win a lot of non-white voters who are interested in that stuff and don't care about the social issues. But they could also keep a lot of rural white voters in their column and actually help them. This is why Democrats are bleeding non-white voters because for so long they just appealed to these voters based on identity and grievance. Mm-hmm. And these people voted for them. But once you've got them in your column, if you're just going to keep talking about identity and grievance, that's going to get old after a while. And eventually people are going to say, OK, you know, that's great. 
but uh, my gas prices are going. Our gas prices are going up. They're doubling. You know, I'm, I'm not making as much money as I did ten years ago. And this is something Republicans have to don't. They can't fall into the same mistake. That's they exactly. They that's, can't be like, okay, rule voters are going to vote for us no matter what. Mm-hmm. You got to take care of. Got to give them something. That's exactly why one of the first things Biden did in the coronavirus stimulus bill was include reparations for non-white farmers. Mm-hmm. So he could specifically say, hey, look, I'm not just talking about equality i'm giving it to you guys in the form of these billions of payouts and that's why you're seeing that as well with the illegals he's not just giving illegals amnesty he is giving them four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person yeah nobody if trump or whoever runs in as a republican in 2024 nobody in 2024 will be able to say that anyone has done more for black americans than joe biden joe Mm -hmm. biden in his short term in office has done more for black americans than any president in american history because joe biden has delivered for black people, and he is looking to deliver for illegal aliens. So this yep. is something the Republicans simply can't say. And uh, finally, he says, Jealous says, they must be about protecting our democracy and right to vote. Now, he means something very different, but that's another thing that Republicans need to do if they want to expand their majority. Because if you look at the Virginia election, Republican in New Jersey, in New Jersey and Virginia, if Republicans can do this well this year, mm-hmm. if they expand on that, if they maintain that momentum, Yep. Like they can literally create a Republican decade in the 2020s, just like we had a Republican decade in the 1920s. The 1920s were dominated by Republicans. Yep. We can have the same thing in the 2020s if they follow the president of the NAACP's advice. They just follow his advice, do what Ben Jealous wants the Democratic Party to do, do that as Republicans, and you will have a supermajority for the entire decade. And especially, again, most crucially, in those Rust Belt states. We can still take back Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and get – and they already have Republican legislatures. That's not the problem. You got to flip those governor seats. And when you do, then they, those states especially can start passing election integrity laws like Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Iowa already have. And you can stop this mail-in voting stuff. You know, what's interesting is when Mark Herring first won attorney general in Virginia, he lost on the on election night. He was down 1,200 votes. They magically found a bunch more votes the next day, and he ended up coming out by 900. Funny how so, that happens. Yeah. And that, especially, too, that's one more thing that needs to be pointed out. If it weren't for those northeastern counties— Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax, Loudoun. You take those out of the equation, which is basically just D.C. They're an extension of D.C. This is why we were just talking about this off the air. There actually is a great big upside to D.C. statehood. If we were to give D.C. statehood, yes, they get two more senators. They get maybe one more member of the House, maybe two. But if you give them not just D.C. as as it is, that would be terrible. Give them D.C. as it is, plus let them annex those portions of Virginia let them take the counties in Maryland that border D.C., let them take those handful of counties in Virginia that border D.C., and then let them have that. Because the, the flip side, again, they may get more in Congress. We, in turn, get a red Virginia and a purple, possibly toss-up Maryland, which would be good in the presidential elections for us. And, of course, would also be good in the Senate elections as well, Senate and certainly the House of Representatives. So that would that's one possible silver lining to if D.C. were to get statehood. Well, to close this out, I think it's only appropriate since we already brought up this article uh, to close out on some third world tears. And I say third world tears because Wajahat Ali, who whose parents were from Pakistan, apparently identifies more with the third world and the anti-capitalist struggle of the 1960s than he does with America or his his country, which is supposed to be the United States of America. So here's some tears from the third world on Yunkin's victory. This is in the Daily Beast. You damn Karens are killing America. Oops, they did it again. (laughs) Democrats aren't going to win over the majority of white women, and they need to stop trying and instead court the diverse coalition that can save this country from itself. 
As a student of American history and a person of color, I never underestimate the white, hot rage, anxiety, and resentment of a Karen scorned. You might think you've won them over with Beyonce, Oprah, Chai Latte, and Henna, whatever the hell that is. I, I've never even heard of those last two. But the cult of Karen will always turn on people of color on a dime and to uphold oppressive systems that ensure they remain influential and powerful handmaidens of white supremacy. Oh, cry harder, you loser. I'm loving this. Don't believe me? According to an NBC exit poll, 75% of white women without college degrees voted for Glenn Youngkin for governor of Virginia compared to 56% who went for Trump in 2020. They voted for a man whose single campaign message was about stopping the manufactured boogeyman of critical race theory, the latest incarnation of the Southern strategy, which most of his voters can't define and isn't taught in schools, but they are certain it is absolutely terrifying and worth canceling because it's making their kids hate white people and become transgendered. In some bright news, 62% of college-educated white women went for Democrat Terry McAuliffe, up from 58% who went for Biden last year. But overall, a majority of white women, around 57%, went for Yunkin, a remarkable 15% swing from 2020 when 50% went for Biden and 49% for Trump. I'm not surprised. After all, 47% of white women voted for Trump in 2016, compared to 45% for Clinton. In 2020, these white women were so disgusted by Trump's rampant misogyny, cruelty, and racism that even more of them, 53%, went for the Bulgarian with numerous credible sexual assault allegations. And this is something that a lot of Republicans and conservatives don't quite get because you keep hearing people criticizing wine moms or suburban moms. White women came through for Trump in a huge way, much more so than white men. His percentage went from 47% of white women in 2016 to 53% of white women in 2020. Trump boosted his numbers a full six percentage points among white women, but he lost white men by a full eight percentage points. So this is why when you hear people criticizing white women or suburban moms, oh, well, I guess they don't like the mean tweets, it's completely misplaced. And it actually, it's actually counterproductive because when people are coming your way, you don't want to needle them about you know disputes that you had with them in the past. That's like if you have a friend, you have a falling out, and then for the next six months, they're finally you're finally starting to warm up and become friends again, and you keep bringing up the past. And this is a big mistake that a lot of really tone-deaf conservative men tend to make. It makes sense. They vote for their interests, which is preserving whiteness at all costs. I don't know. I mean, I think if you're a white person, you probably want to preserve whiteness. You know, I, I, I kind of would like to preserve, if I'm white... I do want to preserve myself. Like, I don't I don't want to get killed. When push comes to shove, many white women in this country have historically shoved people of color out of the way. These suburban PTA moms were segregation's constant gardeners who helped keep Jim Crow alive. They upheld white power at the expense of black and brown women as they marched towards suffrage. Well, so much for that, uh, that feminist coalition they tried to create with the Women's March. I mean, at this point, they're basically saying, F you, white women. Oh, I remember. Again, that was so glorious watching that thing just crumble in and, on itself. And that's really why white women came over to Trump, because non-white women and the media so vilified white women who were against Trump in 2016. At some point, they were like, OK, you know what? You know, forget this. I'm voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. And they even came out uh, to derail the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, listen to how he, he frames this. The Equal Rights Amendment had nothing to do with race. Not so he whatsoever. says they even came out to derail the Equal Rights Amendment thanks to the advocacy of conservative firebrand Phyllis Schlafly, who argued that – and he, in parentheses he puts white – who argued that white women and their in parentheses white families were better under the current unequal system that promoted patriarchy and white supremacy. No, she didn't say anything about white people. In parentheses, he he just assumes that what she meant is our white families. She was talking about all families. She had a point, he writes. While uh, why dismantle a system where you can always be the victim and weaponize your tears into bullets against black and brown bodies? When doing the right thing means that your white son and daughter would have to compete equally with children of color in academic sports and work in the workplace, and your white husband won't get a head start on job promotions, higher wages, and bank loans compared to colleagues of color. So he's arguing that white kids 
compete at a higher level. He's arguing that black kids don't compete on an equal playing field with white kids in sports. Is that why the NBA is like 90% black? Why dismantle a system that will protect your white children from having to confront the enduring sin and trauma of white supremacy, which includes slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, xenophobia, and racist dog whistles that continue to degrade, humiliate, and incarcerate so many people of color? In that version of America, it's good to be a white woman. When you go missing or there's a tragic murder, this country mourns you, writes about you, and mobilizes all its efforts to seek retribution. But it all but ignores black and brown girls who are also loved and leave behind family, friends, yearning for justice, closure, and empathy. These Virginia Karens can now sleep peacefully at night knowing their cultural warriors will confront and annihilate that loathsome and fearsome beast known as CRT. I'll be fair and give credit where it's due. The cynical, ugly, and totally fabricated fear of CRT, much like the Sharia fear in 2010. Oh, so that's what it is. Oh, this guy, this guy okay. is the Muslim Paki. He's still got a bone to pick with American conservatives over their anti-Muslim hysteria 10 to 15, 20 years ago. Oh. Nobody talks about Sharia law nowadays. He writes, that singular message was paired with an image of friendly Trump-like candidate who was able to sell the BS that schools are transforming their kids their children into radical transgender activists who will kill pronouns and join the Black Panthers. Well, I mean, that's kind of what they're that's wanting what they're to do. That's for. exactly what their agenda is. Democrats must finally stop chasing Amy and Karen and start chasing Stacey. Lean on women. Of, uh, what, what the hell does this even like? Karen obviously is a white woman. This is the thing. These uh, these. I wasn't aware Stacey was an explicitly these, black name. Like it's perfectly all right. It's, so to fact, mean it, them, make yeah, fun to, of their very name. It's fully justified. And they're just now like th this idiot is just now getting pushback from white liberals. Because they're they're looking at 2022 and they're seeing they're going to get wiped out because there's really no path forward for them because they've already gone all in on anti-whiteness. How do you scale that back? Because you've already you've already raised the hopes of, of non-white people who hate white people that you're going to champion their cause. Mm -hmm. How do you keep their votes and then try to win back some of the white women's votes that you've alienated? And you can't do it. And that's especially the thing with these progressives is they go all in. They even after a night like Tuesday, where again in Minneapolis, defund the police failed. A Republican got elected city attorney in Seattle. They cannot comprehend the idea that the rest of the country is not like San Francisco. He writes, Democrats might not win the majority of white women, but they haven't for a while. That ship has sailed. It's time to court and win over women of color in a diverse coalition that can save this country from itself and its self-destructive addiction to white supremacy. Democrats might not win the majority of white women, but they haven't for a while. And this is true. White women have voted Republican in every single election, have voted majority Republican in every election since the Lyndon Johnson landslide. So even Trump, Trump was the closest that Democrats ever came. 2016 was the closest Democrats ever came to winning the white female vote. Mm -hmm. But even then, Trump beat Hillary 47 percent to 45 percent. So, you know, this is the thing. They, they keep thinking they're going to win over white suburban moms, wine sipping moms. It's just not the case. And they're finally realizing, hey, wait a minute, we haven't won white women in uh, 50 years. So maybe we should stop trying. And yeah, I hope they, I hope they take that lesson to heart. Exactly. And it's time to court and win over women of color in a diverse coalition that can save this country from itself and its self-destructive addiction to white supremacy. At the very least, now Youngkin can stop playing footsie with Trump and his MAGA acolytes and give them a full-throated bear hug while wearing his winter fleece. However, he should reserve the parade for white women who came out for whiteness like a Bath and Body Works candle sale. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if Town Hall had ran an article talking about how the only reason Obama was able to win is his uh, surrogates offered free Popeye's chicken sandwiches or something like that. This is the, this is essentially what he's doing. Like this is, but hey, I, I hope they keep doubling down. I'm all for this stuff. I, I mean, I'm enjoying it. This is a, oh yeah, this is a great article, Mayor Hawks article, Mayor Hacks article. I'm, are, I'm loving it. They need to keep digging. They're digging themselves further into a deeper hole. And again, if not through 
intensified hatred of white people, white women for not voting for them. It's the outright denial. That's one other clip I want to play. This was definitely making the rounds on Twitter. This was a panel on MSNBC as the results were coming, as it was clear that Youngkin had won, and it was a neck-and-neck -neck race in New Jersey, which had them absolutely losing their minds. Nicole Wallace is the one talking here, and she's on a panel with Julian Castro, Claire McCaskill for some reason. I was not aware she was still relevant after Josh Hawley crushed her in 2018. And then some fourth guy, I don't know who this is. I watched Glenn Youngkin's interviews on Fox News, and he did nothing that Claire's, he did not, I mean, he worshipped at the altar of Donald Trump on Fox News. He flew an insurrection flag at his rally. Insurrection flag? What? You mean the American flag? Because, yeah, the January 6th protesters had American flags. That's an insurrection flag now, apparently, according to Nicole Wallace. He simply didn't, he played dumb about a, 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 a Zoom rally. He did not really put much distance between himself and Donald Trump on the big lie or the deadly insurrection. I think that the, the real ominous thing is that critical race theory, which isn't real, <laughs> turned the suburbs 15 points to the Trump insurrection endorsed Republican. Listen to how sad she is. She is about to start bawling. But again, not only, uh, as we said, the line is being repeated. Critical race theory isn't taught. She takes it a step further. Oh, critical race theory isn't real. There is no such thing as critical race theory, which, uh, as we said earlier, that is the most patronizing thing. When the parents are seeing it for themselves via remote virtual learning and you tell them to their face, again, like the CNN reporter saying, oh, there's a burning building right behind me, but pay no attention to that. This is a peaceful protest you are lying to them you are gaslighting them and that's going to insult them even more and they're going to keep voting for republicans who run against critical race theory keep denying that critical race theory even exists because there are still some on the left who say oh no it's real they're just incorrectly defining it they're misinterpreting it so they can't they can't even agree in their own ranks on whether or not critical race theory is real if it isn't real what it is what it isn't and they don't know how to handle it. They went all in on it thinking the media would cover for them and the media covering them would be enough. And it appeared to be enough when Biden, quote unquote, won the election. But now that the media is not there as the filter anymore, the parents can see it for themselves directly. Everyone can see it for what it is. And they don't know how to handle it once they realize, oh, wait, shoot, we're not where we should be demographically as a nation for them to be on our side with this. We're losing voters. We don't know what to do. So they're in complete disarray over this. And again, they have a year to get their act together. They passed the infrastructure bill, which is a big step for them. That's going to work for them in the midterms. We'll see if they manage to get together enough to turn the tide on this and take control of the narrative. But right now, again, as we said, if these demographics and these turnout numbers mean anything for across the country, especially the swing states, but just the country in general, it's going to be a delicious, delicious red wave. Not just red wave in the sense of Republican, but it's going to be a red wave as a bloodbath for the Democrats. That is all the time we have left for this election recap edition of The Right Take. Once again, we are going to talk about the 2020 election. Next week, we are going to do a special episode after this one to summarize the evidence of voter fraud that took place last year and how it ultimately cost Donald Trump the election and put Joe Biden in as an illegitimate president. That is what is coming up next for episode number 45, so be sure to tune in for that, guys. Do not miss it. Follow all of our latest content at righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling so generous, donate to help us keep the show going at righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.